Uh, as we come to God's Word, let's uh, pray again. Let's prepare our hearts to hear and receive uh, this Word from God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank You for this Word. We pray that You would speak to us. We pray for open hearts. And Father, we pray that Your Spirit would move uh, powerfully among us and in us. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would take away any hindrances that uh, prevent us from hearing as we should. Uh, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would soften our hearts, that You would break down any resistance to Your truth, that we would be humble and laid bare before You, that we would draw near to You and find in You uh, true rest and true honour. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Thank you for joining us here live at the church building. And for those of us who are at home, uh, a very good morning. Uh, we, come, uh, we, we are continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, and today we come to Luke 14. We're still in this travel narrative uh, that, where Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Uh, and here, we, we come to the question of the Sabbath and, and this theme of banquet invitations, which we'll continue next week as well. Uh, in the first century, during the time of the early church, you know, Christians got called all kinds of names. Uh, they, they were seen as sort of a bit of a subversive group, so people kind of looked down on them. And in fact, the, to be called a Christian was a bit of an insult, because Christian means uh, little Christ. And it was, it was an insult to be associated with a Messiah who was crucified. Right? So they called them, opponents of Christianity would call them, hey, you little Christ. Going to die just like your master. Uh, they also called Christians cannibals. So something to remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper later. You know, they called Christians cannibals because Christians remembered their Lord by eating his body and drinking his blood. Jesus' followers were also called atheists. Uh, this might surprise some of us, but because we, we are so accustomed to thinking of Christianity as a religion. But in the first century, Christians were typically called atheists. So why, why were they called atheists? Maybe, maybe we think this is unusual because we, we associate Christianity with a religion. And maybe, the, maybe we think the way to be good is by being a religious, moral person. Surely this is how we please God, right? to, to be a good, moral, religious person. But the early Christians were not known for being religious. They did not conform to the religious rituals, traditions, or customs of the day. They had no shrines. They had no temples, no altars, no images, no sacrificial rites, no special class of priests. You know, imagine a, a Christian kind of speaking to his unbelieving neighbor about the faith. An unbelieving neighbor would ask the Christian, hey, where is your temple? And Christian would say, we don't have, an, we don't have one. The non-Christian neighbor would say, uh, what about your priests? You know, so where do your priests go to work? And the Christian would say, we don't have any priests. <laughs> and, and then the non-Christian neighbor, looking quite confused at this point, would, say, would ask, then, then how do you offer sacrifices to your God? You know, how do you please your God? And the Christian would respond, and this is the gospel opportunity, only one ultimate sacrifice was needed, and it is finished. So it is rather ironic that many today consider Christianity to be religious, 
or moralistic. But this is actually far from the truth. The main message of Christianity is not about what we can do to be good people and work our way back to God, whether by being moral or religious. Christianity's core truth concerns the God who came in love to serve, not to be served by religious people. This is where we find ourselves in Luke's Gospel. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Yet, it was often the religious people who were most offended by Jesus. Right? This, this is a surprising truth in Luke's Gospel. It was the religious people who were most uh, offended by his ministry, most offended by his teaching. On the flip side, the people who were most attracted to Jesus, the people who would come near to Him and were intrigued by Him were the irreligious and the immoral. I want to just let us sit in that for a moment. Right? The people who were most attracted to Jesus were the people who were irreligious and immoral, according to Luke's Gospel. And we see this in our passage today as well. Jesus is radically different from the religious establishment of his day. He challenges the religious establishment, he challenges empty religion, and he humbles religious pride. And he will exalt us if we come to him in radical dependence, which is our theme so far for the year. We draw near to him humbly, and we confess our need for him. And this is how we shall be exalted by him. So just two points for us to think about as we work our way through the text this morning. Firstly, Jesus challenges empty religion. Uh, the setting is the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. And Luke tells us that Jesus is dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, so the Pharisees and lawyers were religious people. The, the, the lawyers are actually not lawyers as we are accustomed to think of them today, but these lawyers refer to they were experts in the law of God. So that's why they were called lawyers. They, they studied the scriptures very carefully. They were experts in what the scriptures said. And, and these Pharisees and lawyers had a reputation for being good people right, in that society. They were the, they were the creme of the, the, the creme. You know, they, they were the religious people of that society. They knew the scriptures inside out and they followed many traditions, rules and customs. People saw them as moral people. And so these religious leaders invited Jesus for a midday meal after synagogue service. It's a bit like lunch after church. Right? So after the synagogue service, they all uh, retired to the house of this ruler of the Pharisees and they were having a meal together. But this isn't friendly fellowship because the, the text tells us that the Pharisees and lawyers are watching Jesus carefully. I mean, friends, this meal is a setup. This meal is a trap designed to trap Jesus in a compromising thing. Right? These, these religious rulers are hoping to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing and to discredit him. So they invited him on the pretext of having a meal, but they're just there to catch him, to catch him out. And so far in Luke's Gospel, we've seen how Jesus has been ruffling the religious feathers and upsetting the religious establishment. Time and time again, he has called out their self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitudes. And Jesus, again and again, he's urged them to repent, 
to turn away from their religion and to trust in Him. But they have persistently rejected Him all, all throughout Luke's Gospel. My friends, being religious can blind us to our need for salvation. I mean, this, is the, this is one of the tragic ironies of Luke's Gospel. Being religious can delude us into thinking that we're spiritually okay because we do religious things, but we're actually not. You know, in, in fact, one of the biggest surprises, as I mentioned in Luke's Gospel, is that the supposedly religious people turn away from Jesus while sinful, broken people turn to Him. And religion has no power to make us good to God. You know, when we, when we understand who God is, if we really understood who God is, we would understand this. You know, if we think that religion can somehow make us good to God, then we actually haven't really understood who God is. God is perfectly holy and righteous. He made us to know Him and to enjoy Him. But all of us, every single one of us, we've all turned away from Him and instead of living for His glory, we've lived for our own self-centered plans and pleasures. We have all sinned against God. We've all turned, turned away from this God who is perfectly good and holy and righteous. And, and we've sinned against Him, friends, not just by doing what's obviously wrong, but more fundamentally, and this is where we need to think carefully about sin, we, we've sinned against God by not worshipping Him and loving Him as we ought. So, friends, sin is not just doing something wrong, or sin is not just failing at some religious duty, but, but sin fundamentally is a failure to worship and a failure to love. Right? So it goes a lot deeper than just external actions. Right? So, so as we think about sin, you know, think about these questions, right? who, who do I worship? Who do I love? Really? Who do I worship? Who do I love? And this is the reason why religion cannot save us, because religion doesn't go deep enough. You know, religion affects our, could affect our external behavior. You know, we go through certain religious motions, we do religious things, we, 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 we practice a, a certain level of morality. But religion ultimately doesn't change what we worship or who we worship in our hearts. Religion ultimately doesn't change who I love in my heart. Because sin basically is an internal problem. It's not just a matter of external practice. It's an in internal problem. And, and so we need more than religion. We need a saviour who is able to change our hearts on the inside and make us clean from the inside out. Friends, Jesus has come to do this for us. Jesus has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died on the cross so that sinners like us can be made holy and made right with God. So that sinners like us who have disordered worship, sinners like us who have disordered love, can worship and love as we should. 
And the only way we can do that is, is, if, is if a Savior changes us from the inside. He really saves us and makes us clean for Himself. And this Savior rose from the dead to give us new hearts so that we are able to live new lives by the power of His Spirit. You know, religion says to us, you know, do these things and be accepted. As Jesus says to us, done. Done. You are accepted completely by a holy God. And so this is who Jesus is according to Luke's Gospel. This is the Jesus that we've seen so far as we've worked our way through Luke's Gospel. And this Jesus knows what the Pharisees are up to, yet he still agrees to eat with them. You think, why, why would he do that? Why would he place himself in such a compromised position? Simply because this Jesus is full of mercy and compassion for the lost. He's, he has mercy and compassion for obvious sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes. But he has also mercy and compassion for less obvious sinners. Sinners who are sophisticated in covering their sin with a veneer of religion. He has mercy on them as well. Regardless of whether we are religious or irreligious, we all need Jesus. And you know, this Jesus, he will willingly puts himself in harm's way in order to save sinners like us. Now remember, we are in this travel narrative of Luke's Gospel, and where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem? He's going to die. Right? So this Jesus knows that he's going to the cross, and therefore he continually puts himself in places of danger so that sinners can hear the good news about himself. Friends, this is the Jesus who has come for us. And behold, a, a man with dropsy appears on the scene. Now, dropsy is a, is a kind of old-fashioned term for this condition called edema, which is a disease where excess fluid accumulates in the body's tissues, causing swelling and poor circulation. So, so that's what dropsy is. So who is this man? Uh, we, we don't know a lot about him. You know, was this man a religious teacher? You know, was, was this man specially invited by the Pharisees to uh, trap Jesus, to make him do something? Because after all, it's the Sabbath, and this man needs healing. Or, or, this, or was this man simply a gatecrasher, someone who, who just walked into the meal in the hope of being healed by Jesus? Uh, we, we don't know from the text, but we know what the Pharisees are thinking, even though they don't say anything. Right? Jesus knows their thoughts, which reveals that he's no ordinary man, since only God can see what's in our hearts. So Jesus responds to what they're thinking with a question of his own. And he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So this is, what, this is obviously what they're thinking, right? Okay, you know, there's a, there's a man who needs healing. Jesus is here. What will he do? Will he heal on the Sabbath? If he does, he'll get in trouble. Well, the Old Testament law prohibited the Israelites from doing work on the Sabbath. This was so that Israel would set aside one day a week to worship God. So the Sabbath was a weekly reminder. It's a bit like how we gather on the Lord's Day. Right? It's a weekly reminder of how God is our Creator and how God is our Redeemer. So we do this every week to remind ourselves this is who we worship, this is who we love. And the, the Sabbath was, in this sense, made for the good of God's people. 
because we need this weekly reminder, this weekly rhythm of knowing again and again who our God is. They were being reminded of how this God had made them and freed them from slavery in Egypt. It was meant to be a day of rest and, and spiritual refreshment. This was the benefit of the Sabbath. But the religious leaders in Jesus' day added their traditions and customs to the Sabbath, making it more a burden than a delight. And you see how religion corrupts even the good things of God by undermining the grace of God. You know, friends, we're, we're here and many of us gather regularly on a Sunday. It's, it's good to pause and ask ourselves, why are we here? Are we here simply by force of habit? Or are we here to be refreshed as we again encounter the God we love and the God whom we worship? Now, this is the third time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus confronts the Sabbath issue. In Luke 6, while Jesus teaches in the synagogue, he upsets the Pharisees by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Then in Luke 13, which we saw two weeks ago, a synagogue ruler gets angry with Jesus because he healed a woman on the Sabbath. Jesus' question to the religious leaders really puts them in a bit of a bind. Think about this. It's a very well-worded question. Because if the religious leaders say it is lawful to heal, then they will contradict their own teaching and traditions. But if they say outright it is unlawful, then they run the risk of appearing rather callous and unloving to this man who clearly needs help. They're kind of a bit stuck. Of course, the obvious thing for them to do is to acknowledge that Jesus is right and they're wrong. That would be the obvious and the best thing for them to do. But their hearts are too hardened for them to do that. So instead, they respond to Jesus with this stubborn silence. I, I think this passage is conspicuous for the silence of the religious leaders. They don't say anything. I think it reflects their hardness of heart towards Jesus. Jesus, however, is not deterred. He heals the man and releases him. He, he sets him, sets him free. He sends him away. And this recalls what Jesus had said earlier about his mission, how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he has been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to free the captives. And this is what he's doing for this man as well. And so Jesus follows up with a second question that exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He asked them, verse 5, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Now friends, I want us to notice the double standards of the religious leaders. Now this is essentially the Jesus' question. Why do you have such double standards? The Pharisees refused to let Jesus heal a man, but they themselves will rescue one of their own fallen children or animals on the Sabbath. They, they would think nothing of pulling a son or an ox out of a pit. You know, these religious leaders expect others to keep the rules, but they themselves bend the rules in their own interests. You know, friends, th this is why religious people are often called hypocrites. 
friends, how might we be holding others to high standards while quietly excusing our own faults and failures? This is the, this is the crux of religious hypocrisy. We, we hold others to something and, and we ourselves excuse ourselves for not keeping those very same standards. We point out the speck in someone else's eye while neglecting the log in our own eye. And, 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 their, re- and their response to the healing is quite staggering. So you would think that when a man is healed, that will be followed by great rejoicing and gratitude of heart. But instead, what do we find? Silence. Silence. Rather than rejoicing over the healing, the Pharisees stay silent. Now friends, religion, you think about it, religion finds it really hard to praise God. Religion finds it really hard to give thanks to God. Now, wh- why is that? You think religious people are the ones closest to God, right? You, know, you go to religious things, you kind of seemingly praise God, sing songs, that kind of thing. But, but this passage tells us that religion finds it hard to praise and thank God because that would imply that God deserves all the credit. That's why religious people find it difficult to praise and thank God. Why? Because religion is a form of claiming credit for myself. And if I'm claiming credit for myself, why do I want to share my glory with God? By praising Him and thanking Him. Because that will imply that I can do nothing to save myself. That's why religion is often offended by grace. Because religion insists that we can be good enough to earn God's approval. But friends, grace excludes self-righteousness and self-reliance. Grace is profoundly humbling. That's why grace leads to praise and worship and thanksgiving. Because that's what grace is. Many of us are familiar with and well-practiced in the forms of Christianity. Many of us pray regularly, we read the Bible regularly, we know it well. We attend church regularly, or at least we're online regularly in this season. Many of us are members of a church, some of us members for a long time. Many of us serve faithfully, regularly. But friends, even as we do those things, and they're good things, but even as we do all of those things, what's at the heart of our faith? Jesus, in this passage, he challenges empty religion. And Jesus confronts us, every one of us. doesn't matter how long you've been in the church or how long you've professed to be a Christian. Jesus confronts each and every one of us and calls us to check ourselves. Friends, what is the true condition of our hearts before God? Maybe now, even in this moment, right, in, in, in the quiet of this hall, why not just think about that for a moment? What is the true condition of my heart before God? What have I been trusting in? What have I really been depending on? 
to gain acceptance with God? Or did I start with the gospel, but over the years I've moved away from the gospel and started trusting in other things? What am I really trusting in? The second point from our text has Jesus humbling religious pride. And this is in verses 7 to 11. So really, this, these verses are part of this larger section in, that's found in verses 12 to 24. And, and this section focuses on this theme of banquets and banquet invitations. So today, we'll just look at a smaller bit of this section, verses 7 to 11. And the next week, we'll continue with the rest of the passage. So Jesus is at the meal, as, as we've heard earlier, and while at the meal, he, he sees the guests, right? So he notices guests are choosing the places of honour. You, know, like you, you, you come to a dinner and say, oh yeah, I want that seat, that's a good seat. Don't put me by the toilet door, you know, put me by, by this seat. You know, it's, a, it's a prime location, I can, be, I can see and be seen by people. So, so this is what the guests were doing. They were all jostling for places of, for places of honour. They, they were playing musical chairs, basically. You know, they, they wanted the best seats, and the best seats at the banquet were the ones closest to the host, a bit like the VIP table. Now, friends, this has been a challenging year for banquets. <laughs> Basically, no banquets have been, ha- have, have been happening for a large part of the year because of the pandemic and safe distancing. You know, couples have been getting married, uh, but having to make do with scaled-down ceremonies without the wedding dinner, right? No banquets. No, but, but some couples, I suspect, are actually quite thankful. <laughs> They'd be quietly relieved uh, for being able to have a simpler wedding without the banquet. Now, why? Because organizing a wedding banquet is stressful, right? especially when it comes to the seating arrangements. Right? Oftentimes, I, you know, when I talk to couples, it's like you know, finalizing the guest list is one thing, then after that, making sure all the guests are seated in a way that pleases people. I mean, that's always very stressful. Why, why is it so stressful? Because people care about where they sit. Right? Guests care about where you put them. Because where we sit at a dinner, like a, like a wedding dinner, where we sit actually indicates our place in the social pecking order, right? Obviously, the, the more important you are to the host, the closer you will sit to the host. Right? That, that, that's a, it's, it's accepted wisdom in the way we do seating at our wedding dinners. Right? That's why the VIP table at a wedding is always the, the couple and their immediate family, right? parents, siblings, or other close friends or family. That, that's the table of most importance to the couple. Right? And then the, the, the less familiar that you are with the couple, the further and further away you sit from them. <laughs> right? The closer you are, you sit to the doors. Right? So that, that's pretty customary in wedding dinners. People care about where they sit. And most of us, you know, if we go to a wedding dinner, we're probably too polite, you know, too paise, to jostle for the best seats at the dinner. So we won't do it openly, because that's too crass. But friends, banquets aside, I, I think Jesus captures for us uh, a very human reaction to, to, to honour. Right? I think Jesus notices this very human tendency to seek for honour, to want recognition to want a name for ourselves. We don't have to do it at wedding dinners, but because we do it in our hearts. 
Jesus is asking us a question. Whose glory are we living for? Whose honour are we seeking in our hearts? You know, leave the banquet aside for a moment and think about you know, all the different aspects of your life, your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your serving in the church, your career, uh, your, the wealth that you have, the possessions that you have. What is all of that for? You know, whose honour are you seeking in, in all those things? You know, for example, I'm, I'm a parent myself with two young kids and, and I need to regularly check myself. Like, like why does it matter so much that my kids do well in their exams? Why does it matter to me? Whose honour am I seeking? My own? Because my kids do well and say, hey, you know, I, have, I have really smart kids. Or am I even just seeking my kids' honour so they can boast about how accomplished they are? Why, why do I want them to do well? What am I really seeking? My friends, this is, a f- this is a profound question that we need to ask ourselves. How much does being regarded as successful matter to us? You know, do, do other people's opinions of us matter a lot to us so that we are upset and discouraged when we don't have affirmation or recognition from others? Are we seeking to make our name great? You know, th- think about this coming week. You know, just think about what's going to happen tomorrow and the rest of this week. Whose name are we seeking to make great this coming week? Now, our, the problem we face is our own pride. And Jesus notices this in the way people are seeking a place of honour for themselves. It, it, it reveals the pride that is in their hearts, wanting to make a name for themselves. And, and so Jesus tells them this parable about humility. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will be sh- begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, Jesus' words echo, th- actually these two verses in Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, that, that says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. That's from Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Now, in in giving this advice, you know, in this parable, Jesus is not teaching uh, a false kind of modesty. I think, you know, we we live in an Asian context, so Asians are very familiar with a, a false kind of modesty, right? No, no one wants to take the Pisces piece at the end because everyone wants to, to be seen to be you know, just really humble, careful. So, so we, we're well practiced in, in a false modesty. This false modesty characterizes a lot of our social interactions with one another right? because we want to put ourselves forward and, and seem to be you know, the, the, the key person in every situation. So we, we often 
kind of learn the social norms, we, we pretend to be lowly in order to avoid losing face and so that others will praise us for being so modest, right? You know, we, we, we are very accustomed to humble bragging, right? We say things like, oh, my child's actually not very smart, la. only 99 out of 100 for his exam, not, not very smart. So, so we, we're accustomed to that kind of false modesty. So Jesus is not teaching that here. He's not saying, hey, you know, just pretend to be modest so that someone can praise you and lift you up. He's not saying that. There's a difference between appearing humble and being truly humble. You know, false humility still honors the self, while true humility honors God. And Jesus says to be truly humble is to be content with the lowest place. To be truly humble leaves it up to the host to give honor. To be truly humble realizes that it is not for me to grab honor for myself. That's the prerogative of the host. And the basic principle is this. Do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, rather than craving a name for ourselves out of an overinflated sense of our self-importance. We should rather pursue humility. That's why verse 11 sums it up well. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in God's economy, the first will be last, and the last first. From God's perspective, self-seeking is ultimately self-defeating. I, I love this quote by uh, this commentator, Robert Stein. He says, humiliation is not the same as humility. The former results from the lack of the latter. So what does this mean for our relationships with one another, especially in this local church? What does that mean? You know, friends, if, if we are honest with ourselves, we can often trace the source of our conflicts back to our pride. And Jesus calls us to live in a way that is distinct, that is different from our self-assertive, self-serving, and self-centered culture. So what is our attitude towards one another in the church? Do we, do we roll up to church asking, what's in it for me? Or do we ask, how do I love and serve someone else for their good and for their growth? Do we join the church community to be served or to serve? Right, that's why Paul says in Romans, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us boast about them. No, no. Let us use them to serve others. Now, I speak to especially to those of us in positions of authority, positions of responsibility, husbands, parents, if you are employer or supervisor at work, if you are a teacher, if you serve as an elder in the church, as a deacon, as a ministry leader, as a care group leader, you know, we, we need to hear Jesus' words here right, about honor, about humility. That's why Jesus says to us, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Because this is what he's about. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another good quote for us to think about, the stairway to the ministry is not a grand staircase, but a back stairwell that leads down to the servants' quarters. You know, I'm a fan of Downton Abbey, so some of you may have watched Downton Abbey, and this quote kind of really reminded me of Downton Abbey. You know, the, the upstairs people and the downstairs people, which are the servants, and the upstairs world and the downstairs world don't mix because they, are, they know their place in life. What Jesus says, we belong to the downstairs world. This is our calling as those who serve in Jesus' name. Friends, all that we are and all that we have comes from God. And when we truly understand this, we will be humble and we will be generous. That's why after this parable, Jesus follows up with a call to us to welcome those in need, like the poor, the, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Darrell Box says, the church is not to worry about the chair of honour. Rather, it is to make chairs available to those who are looking for a place to sit. <laughs> it's a lovely quote. Even for those who think there are no chairs for them. But friends, I want to close with a deeper meditation on this parable. Is Jesus simply telling us about humility in our interpersonal relationships? Is this the main point of this parable? I, I put it to us that this parable doesn't just deal with interpersonal relationships, but Jesus is making an even more profound point to us in this parable. Notice he calls it a parable. So this is not just a moral lesson, but it's a parable. And the parable in the Gospels are meant to teach us fundamental truths about God and his kingdom. So this parable is communicating to us an even more profound truth about how we are to come to God and enter His kingdom. God is the host of the banquet. What matters is not what we think of ourselves, but what He thinks of us. True honour comes from the host. True honour comes from God. And he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Jesus is saying, if we come to God with a sense of entitlement, if we come to God with religious pride, thinking that we deserve the best seats, that we deserve a place at the table, then Jesus says God will put us in our place. Our religious and moral performance will not earn us God's favour. And we cannot we cannot draw near to Him with a proud, self-righteous heart boasting of how good we are, of why He should accept us. And Jesus warns us of the perils of pride, especially of pride before God. That's why He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, Make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So when we come to God, we must be content with the lowest place. When we come to God, we, we come recognizing that we are undeserving guests. We are undeserving guests. We come to Him Acknowledging that, God, I, I could never 
deserve or earn a place at your table. Not by any stretch. I, I don't deserve to be here. We bring nothing except our sin and our brokenness. And we do not confess our own righteousness, but we confess our unrighteousness and our need for a saviour. And the good news is that this saviour has come to save sinners. We come to God empty-handed and emptied of ourselves, asking him to fill us with his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about being saved by a religion. Christianity is about being saved by a son. By a son. Friends, have our hearts been captured by a desire for recognition? Are we bound by the fear of man? Because our sense of worth depends on what others think of us. Are we always trying to please the people around us because we want their approval? Friends, are, are we held captive by these things in our lives? And we're constantly trying to please people in order to get affirmation and approval. Jesus tells us here that the gospel releases us from the red race of recognition. Instead of trying to make a name for ourselves, the gospel invites us to place our trust in Jesus because He will give us a name. So instead of trying to make our own name great, we can trust in Jesus and He will do it for us. Because in Christ alone, we become God's beloved sons and daughters. And friends, this name that God gives us, His children, is a far greater honour than any name we could ever earn or deserve for ourselves. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? In Christ, we can be completely secure. And Jesus gives us the freedom of self-forgetfulness so that we can genuinely love and serve others. We can sincerely pour ourselves out for others, not because we're seeking their approval, but because God is pleased with us in Christ. And we have complete freedom to love others, even if they don't love us back. Why? Because we don't depend on their approval in order to love them. Friends, this is the freedom that Christ gives to us if we have security in His name. I love the quote by Tim Keller. I think that's taken from his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he says this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking of myself, thinking more of myself, or thinking less of myself. And the essence of gospel humility is thinking of myself less. And the reason why we can think of ourselves less is because we are secure in the name that Christ gives to us. So we don't have to worry about making a name for ourselves. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, which is actually another way of saying he was content with the lowest place at the feast, standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, will we humble ourselves before Jesus? Will we say to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? I want to close with this hymn by Isaac Watts. And we'll sing it later as well. And this is a wonderful hymn to prepare our hearts uh, to, to draw near to Jesus as well as to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we will do after uh, this service. And Isaac Watts writes, How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed for your grace and your mercy. And Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves. And Father, we thank you that from this passage, you challenge us to consider the state of our hearts before you. And indeed, you humble religious pride. So Father, as we come to you now, in this time of quiet, in this time of prayer, Father, we pray that you would search our hearts. We pray that you would expose what is in our hearts. Father, reveal to us where we stand with you. Father, we do pray that in this time you would draw us to yourself, that you would show us our need for a Savior. Show us that we come to you empty-handed with nothing but our sin and our brokenness. Show us that we need you and we need your Son to rescue us, to save us, to make us new and to give us strength each day to live for your glory. So Father, we pray that your Spirit would work powerfully in us, convict us of your righteousness, Help us to turn to you, trusting in your grace, relying on the name that Jesus gives, not on our own efforts to make a name for ourselves. So Father, help us, we pray. We come to you humbly because we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.